If Reality Check Radio enriches your day and life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. Welcome back, listeners, to RCR Greenwashed with Jasper Eaton and Don. And uh, often I had to pinch myself as to uh, the number of guests we're able to get from overseas uh, through uh, basically other guests telling us good names. And today is no exception. A couple of weeks ago, we had Tom DeVis on from the American Policy Center. And I watched a few videos uh, of his series called Catching Fire. Uh, and there was a, la- a name that came up in that, and that was Dr. Ileana Johnson. And Tom kindly gave me his uh, her email address. And so here today we have Dr. Ileana Johnson from Washington, D.C. And she's got a story uh, that we need to hear. Now, there's two parts to this. One will be her formative years in Romania, then coming to America. And the second part will be what she has observed today. Now, you, if you read or look up Ileana, she's a prolific writer and author, got multiple degrees, uh, and is uh, very, very well thought of in many circles. And in fact, she's published her own blog since 2010 called Ileana Writes. And there's a massive amount of reading to do in there. I've read quite a lot of it. I've even read articles that uh, she had published in Sir David Frost's The Review in 2013. Um, That's a pretty august British journal. So, Eliana, it's great to have you on our show. It's our privilege, and uh, we're so grateful that you can give us your time and your life story, because uh, as you write about uh, leaving or being born in Romania, living your first 19 years there, and heading to the States, that's a massive step. And, you know, we live a comfortable life in New Zealand. Um, you've obviously had to find your way in the world and you've got a lot of life experience. So we'd love to hear about it. Let's start at the very beginning. Where where were you born? Okay, so I was born in Romania um, and uh, I lived there for 20 years. And the first opportunity I had to leave uh, after I met a dashing American guy was to marry him. And um, it took about four years to even be able to do that that way legally. Uh, and I had to pay for my uh, former education in Romania, which included two years of college. And uh, so uh, to make a long story short, uh, it was not easy to leave. And uh, I was even at the airport and they tried to stop me because I had forgotten to sign my passport. And we had to bribe them, bribe them with a package of Kent cigarettes. And I wrote about all of this in my first book, Echoes of Communism, how, what it was like when I first came to America and what it was like living in Romania. And it's stories by religion, education, and that sort of thing. So I came to southern United States and... Uh, I decided quite early on that I wanted to further my education, which I would not have had the opportunity to in Romania because you had to be a Communist Party member. Um, 
And it didn't matter how good of a student you were, if you your parents were not Communist Party members and highly educated and high activists in the party, you had a very uh, low chance of ever doing that. So that was my ticket to be educated to the level that I wanted to be. That's why I have so many degrees. Well. So, 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 can we just go back though to your really early years in Romania and um, what you know? Being brought up in uh, in a country that, by reading your your output, it sort of suggests you had very little um, to come and go on as a household and in a, in a family sense. Um, it was like uh, you had to almost fight for everything you had. Uh, the food supply was always short. Yes. You know, how when at what age did you find that that was something that you could detect was a problem? Well, it was kind of early on. I was six years old, and I remember my mother giving me money and sending me to the nearby uh, kind of strip mall where there was a bread store and a grocery store to stand in line in line to buy bread. And I remember holding the money in my fist. And uh, I was six years old. I stood in line and bought uh, a loaf of bread and it smelled so good. And I would always eat the crust, part of the crust. And I had the change in my other hand (laughs) and I knew I would get chastised once I got home. But I was we were hungry all the time because we could not find food. Um, so every day was a struggle to stand in various lines to find food. So we were all very thin, which uh, by standards in the U.S., that's a good thing because they think you're healthy. But we were not healthy because we did not have proper nutrition. We uh, didn't have protein most of the time and we couldn't find milk. We couldn't find butter. Um, and things that people take for granted in the grocery stores. We couldn't find toilet paper. Uh, we couldn't find drugs. So at an early age, six, I knew that it was a struggle to find food. Yeah, so in what role were you, you know, effectively after the Second World War, who actually pulled the strings in Romania compared to, say, in um, West Germany? It was uh, the Bolsheviks, actually, the Russians. Mm -hmm. They uh, came to Romania to, quote unquote, save us because Romania changed sides from fighting with the Germans to fighting against the Germans. So uh, the Russians came into Romania to... uh, to take out the rest of the troops that remained in Romania. And they stayed for 15 years afterwards to make sure that there would be a Bolshevik regime installed in the country. So they kicked, you know, the king out and the monarchy out and they installed the first communist president. And, uh, of course, after him, there was the second president, Ceausescu, who unfortunately stayed in power until 1989, December, Christmas, 89. It's interesting. Uh, you know, most of us don't know that sort of history, um, actually, because actually, to, to be blunt, we've never had to worry about it. This down mm. under, you just think the life's good. The Second World War's over. Everything, freedom's on its way. We're, we're, it's fabulous. The, the thing that I do remember 
um, Eliana, when I was little, I had a stamp collection, a postage stamp collection, and I'll never so did I. <laughs> the stamps from Romania and Hungary were the best stamps. They were the most colourful um, stamps, and I used to have pages of them. I thought it was fabulous, and I thought, what a great country uh, Romania must be. They've got these fabulous stamps. But clearly it was not a pleasant place. Mm. No, no, it was not. And we didn't have water. We did not have heat most of the time. Uh, the electricity was cut off um, daily. We didn't have hot water. Then daily we didn't have cold water. And it was very hard to live there. Very, very hard. People lived under the worst of circumstances. And of all the communist countries in Eastern Europe, Romania had the worst regime. Yeah. And, and so what was the Romanian economy makeup in that year, those years? What was it that um, actually gave you some semblance of an economy? Well, it was mostly an agrarian uh, mm. economy. Uh, the agriculture was good and they had confiscated all the land and united them under the quote unquote leadership of the communist party who had no idea what they were doing. Um, but and from whatever they could uh, harvest each year, they took uh, a big chunk. And then whatever was left, they um, they gave it to whoever planted the crops, all the former landowners who were forced to work for the regime. And then in the city, you had the proletariat, the ordinary people who were obligated to work in factories for about the same salary. So they were equally miserable, so to speak, and poor, with the exception of the Communist Party activists who were hired at various factories in various departments, and they were supposed to spy on the workers. They were supposed to give them lessons on how to be a good communist. And one such person was the father of my childhood friend that I'm still friends with today. To this day, we talk on the phone periodically. And I remember she always had food. Her mother made good stuff. She never had to stand in line. They always had better clothes. They could find shoes. They could find clothes for wintertime. And uh, I asked her, I said, what was your daddy, a communist apparatchik in the factory and she said yes he was and when he died he left all these communist books around and I said what did you do with them she goes I threw them out in the trash um and I said oh well you shouldn't have you should have mailed them to me <laughs> she said well I didn't know you would want them well they, they would have made good reference books since mm -hmm. I'm a writer but yeah, that's how they lived so much better than we did. And occasionally we'd, we'd get the crumbs. The kids, uh, her mom would invite us over and we'd have a crumb of something that we haven't seen in months. Or at Christmas time, uh, my father would buy me an orange or a banana, or um, he would find some shriveled up grapes, almost turned into raisins. And that was my treat at Christmas. Wow. What did your parents do, Eliana? Uh, my father was a mechanic in a, uh, a refinery. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, my mother was a homemaker a lot of her life, but then she worked in a bread factory as well for extra income because we didn't have enough money. Um, and my father, because everybody knew he was very anti-communist and very outspoken and hated Ceausescu, uh, they would kind of periodically beat him up. Uh, or when Ceausescu would come by in the vicinity of the town where we were, they would arrest him at his place of work and put him in a room until Ceausescu departed. And uh, he died in May of May 12 of 89. They beat him up again. They beat him periodically and they threw him from a scaffold that was like a ninth story level into a big um, pit filled with metal shavings from a lathe. And it really uh, cut him up very badly and it cracked his skull and had a subdural hematoma. And I think it took him, oh, about three weeks to die because he was in a hospital, but they didn't treat him in any way. They didn't put him on IV fluids. Um, his sister gave him a little bit of water with a spoon, but no nutrition. So he'd lost about half of his body weight by the time he died. Um, and uh, I, I wasn't able to talk to him or go see him. And we had tried for years to bring him here um, as well, because I'm an only child, but uh, they did not give him um, a visa. And finally, they approved a visa to come for my graduation. I was uh, getting my PhD and um, President Bush at the time, the father was doing the commencement and he was gonna hand me the diploma and I wanted my dad to be there. And um, he died the day before I graduated. Oh, gosh. Oh, so, but he did have the visa finally. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's like, too grim i'm sorry that uh you know it's it's great you can share that and uh, this is a salutary warning i mean this this show we're trying to bring the stories uh from your history your life to new zealand to tell people this is what it looks like when things aren't right in your governance of your country and you know eliana um yeah i never never knew that we were going to get to that that point in this discussion and it's it's unbelievably believably salutary to try and gain regain some composure here can you tell me what is the economy of the romanian what does it look like today in romania what is what's the transition to well as ceausescu the the tyrant the communist dictator became more powerful he decided that the direction to go for the country was to industrialize it so they actually sold um, agricultural products to the West. And with the money they got in hard currency, they built a lot of projects, but all these factories were not really, um, how should I say, they're not very productive. Yep. They were productive in terms of the communists, but they weren't really making a profit. They were heavily subsidized. Um, uh, however, he was the only Eastern Bloc country or tyrant who did not have debts to the West because whatever money they borrowed from banks, they paid it back. But they did that to the detriment of the standard of living of the population. So the population was so impoverished 
and the Western banks had nothing to forgive in terms of loans like they did in other countries, other Soviet bloc countries. So their citizens lived a lot better than the Romanians did. But anyway, when he was executed Christmas 89, uh, there was a lot of confusion and the former communists stole a lot of the uh, things that were in the patrimony of the country and the money and they became millionaires and billionaires overnight. And by the time people got their bearings together, it was too late. So the country was in economic dire straits. Uh, and unfortunately, the first few presidents after him, they were former communist buddies in the same communist party. So they didn't do things that were beneficial for the population. But with time, they became part of the European Union in 2007. So at that point, the standard of living of the population had improved by necessity because they had to. Uh, so they built a, a better uh, schools, hospitals, and uh, uh, they built some churches, but the population had been so brainwashed, they resented all the churches they had built because they felt like, well, you should have built more schools and more hospitals instead of churches. And uh, But people finally had food, could find food, and they were no longer starving. Um, some of the medical care was better if you had money to pay privately, but the socialized medicine was still um, pretty bad. Uh, they ran out of money uh, in the middle of the year, sometimes even before. So um, the general population's standard of living did not improve as much as people had expected. In the cities, yes, but not in the country. Right. So um, right now they're doing better. However, a lot of the enterprises or factories that were not profitable had been closed or sold to the West and they brought uh, factories and they're doing other things with the land or with the buildings. If if I may ask, and you know, I know you left Romania early, but you've you've stayed in close touch and followed your homeland as I, if I might refer to it like that. What does yes. living under a communist regime do to, in, in your opinion, do to the people of a country, their temperament? If I was That's a very good I, question. I would say that when the incentives finish for people to work towards something, I would say it would breed hypocrisy, laziness, or maybe just not wanting to go ahead, just average is good enough. What do you think? I think uh, a lot of them became depressed and accepted their fate. They became lazy. They were expecting that. It's like almost like a dog. You're you're not treated very well, but you're expecting that handout uh, once a day. It may yeah. not be enough, but it's a handout. And I say this because my uh, one of my cousins, uh, she has since passed away, was telling me on one of my trips that she missed Ceausescu because. <laughs> They didn't have to work very hard. They could pretend to work and they pretended to pay them, but it was something. They didn't have to really try very hard. That's what she said. And I was just appalled at that. So they have this misplaced nostalgia 
of, of something that was in the past and it must have been better because now I'm old and I don't have to really try and I wished I could still get that that kind of feeling. But people were very distrustful of each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had to watch who they spoke to and what they said to, including their own relatives. And sometimes children turned in their parents and the state took the parents away and they never saw them again. And the children were taken to orphanages and became sort of indoctrinated by the Communist Party. And they were really staunch communists. So it was sad. Very well, sad. And I can almost do reflect on it with the welfare state and how some some way today we see in the West. I mean, I come from India where there is no welfare. Literally, there's a bit of families absolutely on the poverty line. There is in-kind transfer of pulses, lentils, wheat, and rice, but there's no welfare state. And what you are saying is, what happened was people pretended to be productive. The state pretended you threw them a few crumbs and everyone just went along. And is that not the very antithesis of the human spirit of endeavoring towards something? Yeah, I think it killed the human spirit. And I think the only way they could survive without just going nuts, they would live for get-togethers with their families at large when they had baptisms or weddings or funerals. It was the time to feel like a normal human being because the rest of the time you were just kind of an insect. That's how you were treated by uh, the government. And my husband couldn't understand when he visited Romania several times, why couldn't he go into the city hall building And when I took my five-year-old daughter um, and she put her feet in a fountain downtown, the police appeared out of nowhere. They had an underground facility right there. You are defacing our founding. She's five-year-old, five years old. She's hot. She doesn't understand that. We come from a different culture. Well, if you don't get her out, I'm going to arrest both of you. Uh, So it it was just a very, it was always us, the proletariat against them. And then you had enemies among the proletariat, sometimes among your own relatives. And as payment, they would get extra food from the party or a little extra money. It was like like a dog getting extra handouts because they didn't want to die. So they did whatever the owner order them to do. Unbelievable. Um, Eliana, what is the um, predominant religion in Romania today then? What, what have, the what largest the religion to? is Orthodox. Right. And Germans, people of that origin. There are some mosques at the Black Sea because Romania fought the Ottoman Empire for 500 years. Um, and, uh, you know, Pretty much any religion is free now, but that was not the case during the communist regime. Uh, Ceausescu considered uh, some denominations as uh, the occult and forbade them entirely. And if he allowed the Orthodox Church to uh, exist and the Catholic Church, the priest 
had to be beholden to the Communist Party too, and they had to indoctrinate the parishioners into the party line, which they did. But I was shocked in 2015 when I went to this one church, I think you read it in my last article, uh, Don, I'm not sure, uh, where uh, there's a memorial to a guy who set himself on fire. He committed suicide on this uh, ski slope that was very popular with foreigners and some rich locals. And he did it to protest Ceausescu's regime. So they raised this memorial and right next to it, there was a beautiful wooden church that didn't used to be there. So I went inside and I saw the young priest and he came up to me and we struck up a conversation and I asked him about the memorial outside. And he said to me, and it shocked me. So he said, well, if he had listened to what the communist party told him to do, he would might still be alive today. And I thought, what? This is 2015. Um, communism is forbidden since 89. Yeah, so that's... I was shocked. There and this was such... a young person. I think he was maybe 28 years old. Oh, it's, it's from the side of the planet. It almost seems hard to fathom and believe the stories you're telling but it's so vital we hear them. Um, I've traveled into Europe. I've heard stories from um, uh, an Austrian uh, fighter who had to hide in the, uh, I think it's the Corinthian mountains for years before he could come back out. Uh, the stories that we have never heard in New Zealand. One wonders, one would think, Eliana, that coming from Romania and living in the US, you would be completely feeling carefree and there would be nothing else that would provoke you to be writing books on communism. After all, that's what you fled, didn't you? So yes, let's talk absolutely. about life in the U.S. now. Yes. Uh, well, so when I first came, um, I was trying to find a job as a substitute teacher because I didn't know. I knew I wanted to be a teacher, but I thought, let's try substitute. And um I just found a lot of strange things such as we can't just take anybody off the street. You have to be licensed. And I learned that Jimmy Carter had instituted the Department of Education in 1979, and you had to literally be licensed and approved by the College of Education. And I found the graduates of this College of Education to be actually very shallowly educated in terms of actual uh, knowledge. Uh, they knew how to make a cute lesson plan, um, but that was about it. And um, they were just so controlling of other people and of students. And um, I, I didn't like that. And I thought, wow, these people know so little. I know I have forgotten more than these people know, and they have a license. And they don't let people with an arts and science degree or a doctorate teach unless they approve it. The Department of Education approve it, approves it. So I found that rather strange. And I saw early signs of indoctrination into communism because I would look at my students and I would look at various conferences, what the curricula was that these college professors were devising for teachers who were teaching in our public schools. 
and they were devoid of content most of the time, but they had a lot of Marxism in the lesson plans and all the little gimmicks um, that they would come up with. Uh, For example, everybody thought when I first came that Noam Chomsky, oh, he's just a wonderful educator. He has a degree in linguistics and a PhD. And, oh, he says that uh, you learn languages better when you're young. Really, that's a given. And that grammar is about the same in all languages. Yes, because we're all uh, stemming from Indo-European languages. So it was just common sense stuff that these people were making it like they invented language. And it's, I don't know, it just bothered me. And as more years went by, if I would say, but maybe we should do this this way because it's more logical. And I, I would be told by the dean, well, this is how we do it in this country. And if you don't like it, you can go back where you came from. <laughs> and then I would see how my children were treated by uh, colleagues and other Americans in the Southern town that we lived. Uh, they were considered children of foreigners uh, because my mom didn't speak English. So my children spoke fluently Romanian, but they would ask me in private, uh, can you please not speak to us in public in Romanian, speak in English? Or they would tell my mother, can you not speak so loudly? Uh, Because we don't want people to know that you are foreign. So it, there were just subtle signs everywhere. It was yeah. amazing you said that because right when I came to New Zealand, in the very beginning, I remember going to one, one of these, they had these discussion groups and a fellow farmer was talking about how one of their farm workers, my husband and I are farmers, had been giving them a lot of issues and a couple of those were very serious. One of the, you could even call it theft of some things from the farm. And I very innocently asked. So I said, so why is he still working for you? And this gentleman replies to me. He says, you're new here, aren't you? He says, I can't. I need to give him three trials. Then it needs to happen. And then if I, if I sack him right now, he says, I could be sued. And I was amazed. I said, this guy is actually your farm worker is stealing from you. And you are that worried. This happened pretty much within three or four months of my landing in New Zealand because our boss thought it's good for my husband and I to go out and meet fellow farmers at other and I, I just couldn't believe it, that this is what is happening. You you know the guy is stealing from you. You have proof of that, and you can't because the Department of Labor or you face a big fine. And a similar thing happened when I went to university here. I went to an open day of a big, you know, a well-known university. And very little of that day was about accounting. A large part of the day was about mental wellness, pastoral support, physical wellness, sexual wellness services available, uh, budgetary advisory and all. And I was like, wow, I, I want to do a degree. And here they are molly coddling me. And I went home and I told my husband, I said, I'm doing this extramurally. And I did it extramurally because I just wasn't happy. I didn't understand it then, but I now I look at it, it's the state outreach far more to what their brief was. You know, if it's teaching, just teach. Don't have an open day like this because I, I was used to someone coming from India, a lecturer plonking books. This is what you need to do. These books need to be read. This is the grade you need to get. So I sort of felt, I don't recognize it, didn't recognize it then, Don, but I think it would be what would you, our term as a well, socialist tupper now. 
what I, I, I remember when I went to the first university and uh, I brought my transcript from Romania because I did go to college there for two years before I moved here and I had um, my coursework and some was stuff like scientific socialism. And first of all, there's nothing scientific about socialism. It's just a dogma. Uh, it's just a theory that Karl Marx came up with. Um, but, you know, we had to study that. And I remember the professor laughing, oh, we can't give you credit for that. And I thought, wow, today, if I brought my transcript with uh, scientific socialism, um, I had it for two years, I'd probably get six hours credit, college credit. <laughs> <laughs> so there was some semblance of normalcy at that time in the South when I went to college. Some of my professors were not hardcore communist, but I had one guy who was from Harvard, was an economics professor, and he would come sit on the desk with his legs crossed in a yogi position in his Harachi sandals, and he would just start talking about his sex life at Harvard, and we had to study economics. I think we did um, <laughs> I can't remember what is. I think it was managerial economics. We had to study on our own in all in order to pass the test. He was definitely a commie, at least so, a socialist. So, so taking it right back, I mean, I I'm not even university educated, and it took me until recent years to open my eyes and and start to observe better and read um, just a little bit about the genesis of all of this stuff that we're talking about here. Um, and you talked about Karl Marx, and um, and then I learned of uh, the formative progressive movement was around 1890, I gather, and led into some Green Party sort of policies or politics. But of course, there was Antonio Gramsci in the in the 20s that talked about, I think it was the 20s, talked about the long march through the institutions. And as soon as I read that, uh, and I didn't read lots about him, you will have read lots more. My eyes and ears uh, put it, well. I sort of put it all together, and um, and then I had another guy tell me about the Fabian Society and a whole uh, the whole pat, yeah the the patchwork sort of all formed uh, into something whole for me, and you see it through our universities, through our um, professions. Everybody has weakened to the resolve of the. Marxist communist agendas. It's, it has been a long march through the institutions. And of course, Jasper, uh, uh, in the last six years in New Zealand, it came here on steroids. Um, mm. We see, I think we're observing it in the United States as well, um, Eliana. Would that be fair to say? I mean, but yeah, most, most definitely. Before they were kind of in hiding, but now they're not hiding anymore. Yeah. And uh, frankly, you know, when a lot of the German, you know, the Fabian socialists were chased out of or ran away from Hitler, they came to New York and they went to uh, different universities in the area and they went to Columbia and they started um, the school of, um, you know, educating future teachers and they fanned out across the country and they themselves taught other teachers how to be socialist slash communist. So now they're no longer in hiding. They're just out in the open. I, I saw them when they were not in hiding, when they would go to conferences of 
for the College of Education. And they were like the darlings of the lecture circuit. And whatever they said was the most important thing in education. And, oh, we have to implement it right away. And we have to write new books. The glossier, the better. Oh, and let's make workbooks. Let's make tests so the teachers don't have to do anything except impart this Marxist education that's emphasizing feeling good and sexuality and revolution and never mind the actual content that the students needed to retain. Um, so I saw it, but what could we do? Because we were outsiders. We were not part of the uh, National Teachers Association and other uh, unions. As a matter of fact, uh, the last two years before I retired, we actually had to fight to keep our jobs because we had PhDs. And they were forcing us to go back to school to learn how to be teachers after 25 and 30 oh, yes. years of education uh, from some greenhorn uh, student from the College of Education. They had to watch our teaching and supervisors in the classroom. And it was just outrageous. But it, now is, the that... Marxists haven't they united? Sorry, John. Yeah, they have united. It's outrageous, uh, that last comment. I mean, I've noted it in many professions. They have these point systems that you've got to keep your points up to date by going back to school and making sure you've relearned what you um, what they want you to learn. Sorry. It wasn't uh, even about that. It was about they felt like if you don't have the license, you cannot teach. Yeah. Never mind you have four degrees and you have a doctorate. You cannot teach. You can teach in college, but you can't teach cannot. public schools. And what we what we see now is, and what you've uh, referred to very extensively in your book, United Nations Agenda 21, Environmental Piracy, if we come to that, the Marxists seem to have all united, and the United Nations agendas seem to be, you know, we've replaced the 10 planks of Marxism with the goals of Agenda 21. I can literally synonymously use these terms these days. And we seem to have especially out in the West, we have governments that while pretending to be also oh kind and trying to be also oh fair, which is where socialism used to be, let's redistribute everything, let's be fair. We now have our Western governments, especially spearheading this. And the playbook is the one from Agenda 2030 or Agenda 21, whatever they decide to call it, whatever the flavor of the month. And mm -hmm. environment seems to be their single, I mean, the last bit of ammunition is environment. Everything is about the environment. You don't want to, you can't wear this. You can't drive this. You can't eat this. You can't go here, there, and everywhere. And it's all to save the planet. How convenient, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if in New Zealand you have uh, chemical aerial spraying, but here in uh, Northern Virginia, we very seldom have clear blue skies anymore. Today was an exception. They did not spray with anything. <laughs> so the skies were beautiful. There were a few airplanes crossing above, but they expelled air vapor and it dispersed immediately. When they spray chemicals, they stay and stay and stay and they start spreading and spreading and it's all in a grid pattern. And eventually that grid uh, starts moving and they become this just thick 
uh, gray mass of ugliness and then you start smelling whatever chemicals they sprayed, it comes down to the ground several hours later and the air just smells horrible, like chemicals. Uh, so, uh, yeah. It, and it, I think it's all over the world. I've seen it in Romania. I've seen it in Europe, Don. Um, so, so that's, uh, I mean, I, that's blown my mind. I um, have no idea uh, about that. Um, you know, there's, there is people in New Zealand talking about it happening here too, uh, but I, I haven't had the proof. Um, uh, and, and I do. You know, I'll be glad to send you pictures of the sky. I look right. at the sky every day and I can point, okay, this is chemtrails and this is contrails. The contrails, it's air vapors that evaporate quickly. Sure. from the tail of an airplane well chemtrails is different they stay and they spread and it's right. awful so they want to what, block out the sun is that what they're trying to do yeah they're trying and of course uh, several of the billionaires here in the u.s are not shy about saying that yeah we need to spray the air so we can block out the harmful rays of the sun um in order to mitigate global warming but that's ridiculous. We need CO2. We don't need it piped underground. They use CO2 in greenhouses to intensify the growth of plants. Uh, without it, we'll, we'll be in trouble. We're going to starve. Well, Alina, you refer to in your book, uh, United Nations Agenda 21, Environmental Piracy, you refer to the main goals of United Nations 21, Agenda 21, redistribution of population according to resources government control of land to achieve equitable distribution of resources, land use control through zoning and planning, government control of excessive profits from land use, rural and urban land use. And the more I read through it, the more it seems we are being tied into these knots. We are being strangled by bureaucratic red tape. And it's all under this guise of environmentalism here. And I mean, I only have to look around myself being on a farm here, the amount of legislation that's coming through to strangle us, to stop us from being able to, you know, be productive in any way. The same thing that the communists use or socialists, whatever you may call them. And the zoning wars, we have national policy statements out here in New Zealand on productive soils. They were supposedly to stop productive rural land going into housing. But now again, there's major control about what you can do. You can own a property. That's fine. But they decide what you will do with that property. What's it like in the States with all the smart growth agenda and everything? It's pretty much the same way. We had to fight in Virginia several years ago. Um, this lady had a farm and she had it under um, con conservation easement, which mm. meant that she couldn't do anything to it unless the NGOs that held the contract of conservation easement approved it. So we, she took it to court. We went to Richmond. Um, anyway, it was just a lengthy battle and she finally won. So if you do have a conservation easement in Virginia, you can do certain things with it without the approval of the conservation easement holders, which usually are a non-governmental organization who lured you in to agreeing to sign this easement um, by 
offering you a reduction in taxes or some other uh, incentive that the farmer was too dumb to really research into it and see, okay, am I going to lock down my land in perpetuity and I can't do anything? I can't even clear out a, a rain puddle without yeah. approval or I can't let the cows sit in the shade of this tree or this group of three of trees because it interferes with the view shed. So yeah. we're doing okay. But in other parts of the country, um, they, they now have that 30-30 agenda. I don't know if you're familiar with it. By 2030, um, the president, our president said that we have to take over 30% more of the private land. And to do that, one of the things they're going to do, have to do is these conservation easements in order to control private property or just simply to buy people out by offering, uh, large amounts per acre, much more than the going market rate. And right now, uh, out west, the federal government owns 50% of the land in Nevada. They own 80 to 90% of the land, uh, and other places even more. So out west, they already own big chunks of land. Now by 2050, they have a plan which is 50 by 50. So they have to own 50% of the private land. Um, Maybe people will sell. Um, I don't know who's going to do agriculture and they're going to do spray crops with, uh, I don't know, with drones. They're going to have these agri-cores. Uh, they started building these 15-minute cities. We just had the first one open in Tempe, Arizona. Um, we, think we, we often make the mistake, I think, of assuming that Agenda 2030 is only affecting rural people it's not it's no. only affecting farmers but you you live in the close to washington if you yeah. could explain to us how does it affect your day-to-day -day life how does it impact you well, as a in urban our dweller? county when we moved here 16 years ago there were forests everywhere it was beautiful now the only trees left are pretty much i'm exaggerating a little bit but <laughs> it's a forest of the state park which is about 16 hundred acres or something like that. Anyway, the rest of it has been cut down. They, they just keep building these high-rise apartments and building and building. And they're stripping the land where pretty soon it's just going to be one big um, apartment complex uniting. Um, I don't know how they're going to transform suburbia into 15-minute cities because people are too spread out. We have too much territory, but it is possible in metropolitan areas like in Tempe, Arizona, where people can't have cars. And I heard this lady from the UK talking about uh, Oxford, England has a 15-minute city, and apparently you can only exit it to through the gate closest to where your house is and you only have a hundred exits and entries a year and of course they do it mm -hmm. with your license plate and if you exceed that then you get a fine so if you let's say you live at close to gate a and let's say your mother or sister lives at gate d which is uh you could reach it by just crossing uh, the circular area directly. Now yep. you can't do that. You have to come out 
and you have to go around the circle and come through the gate closest to her. So it's just unbelievable crazy. Mm. Yeah. So, so in, in terms for us is traffic is traffic is pretty much killing because we have influx of everybody from 225 countries just coming to Washington DC because you are, you have the political class and then you have all the incoming illegals. There's not much in between. Isn't, isn't that amazing? There are plenty of jobs. Isn't it amazing how you've got these um, migrants, legal and illegal, uh, potentially, coming to your country and still wishing to fly the flag of their own country uh, over there? Yeah, the it's flag. everywhere. Uh, like I a- said, everybody, nobody on our street is flying the American flag except us. Uh, everybody else is flying the flag of wherever they're from. So, and I thought, so, well, why don't you just go where you're from if it's better? Why are you here? Well, that's the, that's the odd thing. If you want to be a true patriot to your country and recognize um, sovereignty, you would wonder why they can't be truly patriotic and fly the American flag. Um, I mean, if I saw if I saw neighbors flying an alternate flag to the New Zealand flag, I would be very concerned. And so, you know, we, we have got enough minutes left to um, tell the whole story, but where, what's the next phase of this? Is there, we seem to have a phase of governments of the Marxist type and influences being slowly dismantled in the, in the world and the West. Um, I noticed the European um, parliaments as several of them having a they call them right, far right. Of course, they're probably more centrist of anything. Um, and even in Argentina, there's been a change of government. New Zealand's had a change of government. Australia's looking a bit shaky at the moment. You've got American, uh, you know, the elections coming up for the president. Um, oh, I'm not very positive about the elections. I don't think they're going to be honest. Uh, they've already perfected the art of cheating through these mail-in ballots. Right, right. So, uh, well, my my point was going to be, uh, aside from that cheating aspect, is there seems to be a trend to um, getting a more balanced view. Is that going to stem this tide for long? Or is it going to be that this tide of uh, Marxism, communism, just continues until uh, the West totally consumes itself and the East just wins? I don't want to be so pessimistic, but I think the trend will continue to the point where we are going to run out of food and run out of uh, fuel because they're trying to take away our gas stoves. They're trying to take our gas furnaces um, and especially in state Democrat states like New York. And of course, Virginia is for all practical purposes, Democrat. I don't have any representation in this state. Um, And I know as soon as I vote, my vote is nullified by an illegal alien who votes illegally. Mm. So um, I I think the trend is going to continue. I don't think it's going to stop. I think the food supply and the fuel supply and the lack of energy are going to be the turning points. But I can't tell you how it's going to happen. And the fact that we're printing trillions of dollars of money of dollars with no backing and it's causing uh, 
high inflation is not astronomical, but it's high inflation. You go to the grocery store and you spend a hundred dollars and you come back home with one bag, yeah. one small bag. Same, of, same in New, same in New Zealand uh, right. nowadays. So, uh, yep. And they, there's no, um, there's no stopping in sight. Uh, Congress has fought uh, former president Trump. Uh, for $6 billion to build the southern border fence because we don't have the money, but we found money, billions and billions, a hundred billions to give to the war effort in Ukraine. And I'm not saying we shouldn't help those people, but we've got our priorities uh, skewed. So when we run out of energy and the dollar crashes and we have inflation that we cannot control, I think something is going to happen i just can't tell you what don't know what's going to happen uh, well we we're of the belief that when the citizens of this country find that their pocketbook is as you call it is empty and they can't afford basics uh, of life uh, anymore uh, to run families um things will things will change i mean we we have a term over so. here the non-tradable inflation is the problem around us. I mean, and that's government and local government costs. They're all carrying on as if there's no tomorrow. They all have uh, inflationary, you know, wage increase expectations, job expansion expectations. And the only way that can be paid for is uh, by those of us who do real work, generating it from the environment and or producing something. And there's no respect for that here yet. There will have to be respect because the tank is I don't is think empty. there's respect for that here either. There's mm -hmm. less than 3% of Americans who are involved in farming in this country, and I don't think they're respected at all. I think the millennials and Gen Z and whatever else they think, or Gen X, they think they uh, food comes from the grocery store. Yeah. But I think some of them are waking up because they can't afford basics and they realize they can never afford a house like their parents and grandparents used to. Mm. So do they they can barely they, afford the rent. <laughs> does that gener does that generation seem to be concerned about the surveillance state, about digital currency, about you know the what I call the new age feudalism. I mean, are they concerned about techno feudalism, for instance? It's it I just I don't think they are because they're with their eyes and noses in their devices 24-7. And I've seen them at the airport just offering themselves to have their digital face scanned in at, at TSA in order to travel. And they were just like happy little seals. They didn't see that as an invasion of their privacy, of their who they are. And uh, isn't it ironic then, uh, Elena? Eliana, because in Romania, you said your friend's uh, father was sort of the informer of working with them. These days, we don't need informers. We offer ourselves up to this. Yeah, we are the informers. We are the informers. Right. Yep. And uh, when, if those guys had technology, Stalin and everyone else onwards from him. I mean, from my own experience, I, uh, I in the early 80s, I, I taught until 2008. And mm -hmm. when I would try to tell my students what life was like under communism and uh, how the system is so much worse than capitalism, uh, they would just laugh. Yeah, OK, um, you were barefoot and pregnant going uphill and downhill in six feet of snow, that sort of thing. So yeah. I just stopped telling them anything because I realized they were so brainwashed. They were incredulous to truth if it slapped them in the face. 
Not unlike, I don't know if you've ever seen, there's a video online by a Yui uh, Bezmanov who used to be a KGB uh, informer, um, trainer, whatever, and he defected to the U.S. And he talks about how they can, in 15 years, they can brainwash entire generations of young people and the truth can hit them in the face and they wouldn't believe it. No. Yeah, and I and I heard you on a, a previous um, uh, podcast. I think it was. It might have been a video with Tom um, talking about the very same question. Effectively, it was going to be at least twenty years if you started today. Uh, effectively, mm-hmm. in the kindergartens to or the junior schools to get the influence changed uh, through that tier of society. We've got a mission, uh, haven't we? Uh, Jasper, we've got a mission, Eliana, we've got a mission all around the West to try and hold hold the line. I mean, I just don't want to see this line go any further than it's gotten away with to date. Um, there is nothing good going to come out of it for our kids. There's nothing good going to come out of it for our country. And uh, I don't, I, I just despair that our forefathers fought for our liberties, our freedoms, and we've treated it with scant regard. And I'm, um, look, Eliana, we've done no justice to your story of your life story in the second part, really. It's so much bigger than we could uh, talk about. But we've got to talk about it. We've got to be the storytellers. We've got to let it all out. And so we're just so grateful that you've taken the time and given us your time uh, for our listeners to have part of your life. And, um, we're in your debt for having your time and hopefully we can get you back again very soon. Well, I hope so. I would love to come. Just always remember that if we don't tell these stories and uh, our children and grandchildren don't have the experience, they're not going to know who we were, where they came from and what it was like because in between all these nefarious people have written new books about a fake history so they won't know who they are so we well, have I, to tell them i hope your history is not cancelled out because uh listeners you need to go into eliana wright's uh blog i, have, I think i've got that right dot uh, com and um and just start reading there's plenty there to last you a night or, day or a week or two actually um and we need people like eliana to keep keep her output going because uh if these stories don't get told we are just uh going further into the abyss so it's a bit of a negative ending to uh to what i think has been a really important interview jasper but there you go that's our that's our life one can't sugarcoat the truth no matter what it is isn't it and that's Mm. what we aim to bring our listeners a reality check on what what uh, has been and what lies ahead unless we wake up in a hurry and i i am optimistic hurry i mean wake up we will it's just a matter of you can't uh, you know push this process for everyone everyone has to see things for what they are and when the economic pain, pain gets real most see things for what they are there's only so much you can so far you can you know dwell on being kind and just and all that jazz so eliana thank you so much for coming on on Greenwash today, and we hope to have you back and one day really delve into the United Nations agendas. But for now, we are very Thank grateful. Thank you, Jasper and Don. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Goodbye.
If Reality Check Radio enriches your day in life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and the dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate.